Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. The final episode we are sharing from the archive before our new season begins is with the fabulous Dorno Porter. <laughs> now, fabulous isn't really a word that I find myself using very often, and I don't think there are many people I would use it about, but I just think it's the right word for Dawn. She's so great, and I've been a fan of hers and her work for many years, and it really was just a joy to get to sit down and talk all things food with her. She's a real kindred spirit as she loves food. She loves sandwiches. She loves crisps and crisps in sandwiches, which are all signs of good character in my humble sandwich loving opinion. (laughs) I really hope you enjoy this and you've enjoyed our trip down memory lane and we will see you very soon for the new season. Exciting. My guest today is Dorno Porter. Dawn is an author, broadcaster, writer, podcaster, and journalist. Having trained at drama school, Dawn became a TV presenter, rising to fame with her critically acclaimed BBC documentary, Super Slim Me. Many more TV shows followed, and in 2013, Dawn began a new chapter of her career. She released her first novel, which got shortlisted for the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. More books followed, she's now written seven, and she's continued to have huge writing success as a Sunday Times bestseller. Dawn lives in Los Angeles with her movie star husband, two young sons, and her dog, Potato. Dawn has said, I love food. I realise that's a basic statement and might not sound like it warrants a whole load of page time, but for me, it does. Food is a great passion and pleasure of my life. Reading cookbooks, shopping for ingredients, spending hours in the kitchen, making it, serving it, and then eating it. Brilliant. Welcome, Dawn. Thank you. <laughs> it's honestly such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. Your podcast was one of the ones that I first listened to and I think encouraged me to start my own. Oh, great. Oh, that's so nice. I love the idea of the show. I'm so jealous of it. It's one of, the, you know, sometimes when, because there's so many podcasts and then sometimes you hear about one, you're like, I wish that was mine. I wish that I just picked food and just got to talk about food. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of the dream, isn't it? There were loads of different quotes that I could have picked, obviously brilliant things that you've said over the years. But one particular one that did stand out was, if I'm going to go down, I want to do it slathered in mayonnaise and eating kettle chips. Yes, that's it. I want that to be my beautiful demise. <laughs> I think maybe that should be your sort of epitaph maybe, or maybe a tattoo. I died covered in mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that just sounds completely delicious, doesn't it? So my first question for you is, how do you think you get on on the desert island? Are you good in your own company? I love my own company. There's, um, which is why lockdown has been hard for me because I've never been alone. <laughs> Kids. Um, so I think part of being a writer is needing to to be alone and enjoy being alone and not go crazy. And when you do start to go crazy, you use that craziness and put it into your work. And it's only, as far as I'm concerned, a bonus is uh, being alone. So the idea of being on a desert island, as long as I had some sort of writing utensil, sounds completely dreamy to me, especially after lockdown. (laughs) Yeah, I thought you were going to say lockdown has been kind of stressful because you haven't been able to socialise with lots of different people or whatever. But yeah, you, you basically couldn't escape your children. You haven't been alone this whole year. No, I mean, they've started to go back to school now. So I'm getting those kind of moments, those days, that kind of nine to three alone time again, which is absolutely heaven. But um, even still, even still right now, the idea of going on a desert island alone, which is ridiculous after this year, just sounds like a dream. Go on, we can arrange it. Do, do, send me there. Just make sure I just need like a face shield and a mask and some like gloves and loads of hand sanitizer to get there. And then when I get there, I can shed all that stuff and just relax. Well, yeah, that's true. Okay, I'll get cracking on it. So I feel like there's a lot to talk about, but let's dive straight into the first Desert Island dish. And that is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I find this question really hard, as I'm sure lots of people do, because there are so many. And if it's all right with you, I'm going to pick two and I'll get through them quite quickly. That's absolutely fine. Uh, Because they both represent really different 
times in my life. So until I was 10, I lived with my grandparents and they lived in quite a straight up, straight down, not particularly creative townhouse. And the food that we ate wasn't particularly creative either. It was a real kind of ham, egg and chips type um, childhood, which is not a complaint. But the one dish that really reminds me of the 80s and being like pre-10 is chicken and white wine sauce in a tin that I used to eat um, with a bag of Uncle Ben's boiled rice in a bowl, leathered with salt on the floor next to the heater in the kitchen. And I used to sit on the floor with this bowl of like salty, creamy chicken out of tin, which I wouldn't go near now, but just the taste of it was just my favorite thing and that I can taste it now and I love it. And I try to now make the same dish with like chicken that hasn't been in a tin for six months because the idea of it just went really terrible now. But that really reminds me, I was, um, had quite a sad childhood those years, quite sad because I lost my mom. And I remember just finding like so much comfort in that bowl of food. And then my next one, when I was 10, I moved in with my aunt and uncle into this kind of wonderful country cottage where my auntie was this fantastic cook and suddenly my relationship with food just changed forever because you know she was cooking uh sole for dinner and um shucking oysters and getting winkles from the beach and coming home and boiling them and we just had our palate just got expanded but suddenly the sunday roast became this just symbol of change it was cooked to perfection, like not soggy, mushy vegetables, which had been my um, grandparents' preference. And that's, again, not a complaint. I loved it at the time. It just I just suddenly got introduced to new things and just, you know, very kind of uh, not tough meat and a, a gathering of like six to eight people every Sunday where we would just have this feast that my auntie would prepare. And I remember this kind of feeling of being emotionally lifted by this Sunday experience. So those would be my two big childhood meals. What was her speciality on a Sunday? I mean, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. She would also do a um, huge Yorkshire pudding, not not little small ones. So it was kind of this massive sheet of Yorkshire pudding that would just blow up in the oven. It was absolutely amazing. And then just kind of cut it into into slices. Oh God, I mean, just. That sounds amazing. I mean, she sounds like an amazing cook. I think I read that she was sort of serving you avocado mousse for starters and having three course meals every meal. Yes. And she would do, not. I mean, it sounds, it wasn't that it was posh. It was more just, she was just a massive foodie. She was really into ingredients and really into um, recipes and following recipes. And my, my grand just wasn't that kind of cook. So it was just a huge palate change. And, but there would always be a salad in a, in a side dish. And there would always be maybe a starter of like melon and ham or something like that. Just, just like a spread every night. So good. Sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, really amazing. Do you think that your obvious love of food now would always have appeared? Or do you think it was something that was kind of nurtured from that time that you had with your aunt and uncle? I think having that huge culinary cultural shift at that age meant that I suddenly had this opportunity to see food very differently, which meant that I was very excited by it. And I think because of that, we used to go to, because we lived in Guernsey, we used to go to France a lot for the weekends with my aunt and uncle. So we would have a lot of French food where we, you know, we'd be very adventurous. There's kind of this old family story that my uncle likes to tell where when I was about, uh, I would have been under 10, sitting in a restaurant, the waiter asked what I wanted and I asked for six oysters to start and then 24 oysters for my main course. And apparently, and apparently the uh, the restaurant just kind of like stopped. What <laughs> did that child say? So I was always really adventurous. And I think that, I, who knows, who knows if I would have always been the same, but I think they opened a door for me to eat the kind of food that was exciting. And so I think it just, it, it gave me a relationship with food that was emotional and about adventure from quite an early age, which I'm very grateful for. Amazing. And also I think, well, about that oyster story, I think I read that that love for oysters was slightly short-lived. Oh um, my God. (laughs) Not to lower the tone, but. No, no, no. I'm going to go, I'm going to go into details. Why the hell not? So listen to me, anyone out there who's experienced food poisoning at the hand of an oyster will know how close to death you come. Yeah. I have to say, Dawn, I've been there and um, it's bad. 
It's awful. I was opening the Southampton boat show for some weird reason. And um, they invited me after I'd cut the ribbon, they invited me to the oyster tent where I got oysters and a glass of champagne. And let's just say I didn't leave Southampton for two days. I had to find, I found the last hotel room in the whole of Southampton and almost died. <laughs> and then six weeks later, oh, but I do remember Chris, had, my husband had, um, we'd been really excited to go to this new restaurant. Say, say I got sick on the Tuesday. We were excited to go to this new restaurant on the Friday that we had a booking for and I made it back I made it back up to London on the Friday and I felt so guilty I couldn't eat anything but I was so skinny I wore an actual catsuit <laughs> well there's always a silver lining <laughs> <laughs> I was like parading around in this catsuit but I couldn't eat anything couldn't eat anything <laughs> and then um, six weeks later I went to a restaurant and just determined that this wasn't going to be a thing. I ordered cooked oysters and got as sick again six weeks later, which because apparently once you've had the oyster thing, it doesn't leave you. And I thought they remember. They remember. There's what that oyster is still inside of me waiting. <laughs> <laughs> OK, let's let's move on. Sorry that I brought that up. But, um, <laughs> happy to talk about it anytime. <laughs> it's very generous of you, Dawn. I always wonder with that question, as a mother yourself, what do you think your sons would answer to that question? If they were to look back on their childhood, what do you think the dish will be that most reminds them of their childhood? I mean, shamefully, because of lockdown, probably hot dogs right now. <laughs> I cook relentlessly. For I cook separately for the kids and separately for us. So as in, I cook for them at five and I cook for us later. My youngest Valentine is annoying. Art is now, he's nearly six and got to the age where he'd try anything. But I, I kind of established at the start of lockdown that every Saturday lunchtime we have hot dogs. Oh, that's such a nice tradition. It's quite sweet. And I think I think they'll really remember it because I do cook. Like Neither of them really love pasta. So I can't even do like pasta three nights a week. So I have to do things all the time. I make lots of sausage rolls for them. They love sausages. That's always a hit. But I do think that the kind of excitement of the Saturday hot dog has become a bit of a thing. Um, and also I do a Friday bowl. So after dinner on a Friday, they can watch, they watch TV with like a bowl of um, a few gummies and crisps and treats. And because I'm, I'm a bit of a bitch about sugar with the kids, not really actually for health reasons, just because it makes them crazy. And I can't, deal with it so I'm quite strict about sugar which means when they get it they're so excited and so after dinner on a Friday night they get gummies and things they might remember their Friday bowl yeah I think that I think it's so nice to do things like that obviously obviously feeding them is nice but I think to do things sort of specific like that <laughs> they respond well to that <laughs> <laughs> things that they sort of they will look back and remember I think that's really nice and sort of the kind of thing you actually have to make a conscious effort to to try to create those memories I think almost I think you do. I mean, Chris laughs at me a lot because I'm obsessed with traditions, not traditions that exist as in traditions that we're supposed to take on from the world, but creating our own. I think because my mum died, I got, I've got this very kind of romantic idea of I want them to say on Fridays, we had the Friday bowl. On Saturdays, we had a hot dog. On Sundays, we went for a walk. Like I want them to have, like my, my Sunday lunch tradition that I did with, that my auntie did is something that I refer back to that I do now that is really important to me. It's a focus point of my memory of being a childhood that's centered around food and people. And I really, I do actively try and do that with the kids of like try and create things that they'll remember. I think that's really nice. That's really nice. Okay, let's move on to the second desert island dish. Dawn, what was the first dish you learned to cook? Oh, gosh, I mean, first dish I learned to cook, I think it was probably my auntie's spaghetti bolognese. She really kind of threw a spin on spaghetti bolognese. She used to really go to town on it. Mushrooms, lots of tomato, bubbling away for hours. And it was covered in Parmesan and just really loads of garlic. Really, really delicious. And so when I went to university, I would try and recreate it, but it never tasted the same. And the reason it never tasted the same is because I used to buy terrible ingredients because that was all I could afford and which is fine that's how it should be when you're a student but it never tasted as good but I used to really 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 try with it um, and I used to cook it a lot because it was really I lived with six boys at university and it was a really satisfying big pot thing that I could cook for everybody um, and so that was it and then over the years I've kind of you know perfected it my recent discovery that tins of tomato sauce is so much more delicious than tins of tomatoes Ooh, what like a like a passata Yes, that's that's it. They call it just tomato sauce here. But yes, passata, exactly. The flavour that you get from it is so gorgeous. Just And um, so I've been using that with good quality minced beef now. And the trick with the 
bolognese is to you know put the wine in at the right point and just let it cook for hours so the meat goes buttery and isn't kind of grainy and that's when I think about me cooking at university and that kind of very cheap mince that I the thing I didn't know is how long you had to cook it for and I just remember this kind of grainy meat taste and actually that meat is fine if you cook it for a long time but I didn't I didn't know that at the time and the best thing that I ever learned but I that I never really learned from my auntie until later which is why my cooking at university was so bad and the bolognese never tasted good is that when you cook with tin tomatoes, people think you just have to heat them up. You have to cook them for ages to turn them sweet. And at uni, I used to buy so the kind of cheaper meat that I didn't cook long enough, so that was grainy, and then just pour in tomatoes and heat it up and think that was cooked, and then serve it saying, oh, this is my auntie's famous bolognese, and all my housemates would be like, it's disgusting. And I couldn't understand. Your poor aunt. I know, (laughs) but I couldn't understand why it was so bad, because all of the ingredients were right. I just, the cooking time was all wrong. Once I discovered, like, you know, let it sit for two hours, then it would have been delicious. But unfortunately, my housemates didn't didn't experience that. Yeah, but it is one of those things that you're right, because technically after 20 minutes, you know, it, it is ready and it is edible. But as you say, it just gets better and better the longer you cook it. Yeah, I want to pick up on the fact that you live with six boys at uni. I did, yeah. And then when I first moved, oh, hang on, at uni there was one, two, three, four of them. And then at uni, I think, uh, when and when I moved down to London, there were six of us. We all lived in a huge warehouse conversion and um, all my friends were boys at that time in my life. And we... We, I mean, it was great. We used to, when we were at uni, we used to split the shopping and all go to the supermarket together and chip in like $20 and buy loads of food and each take a night and cook. Oh, that's so fun. It was, but I mean, our diet was awful. It was white bread, crisps, like white rice, white pasta. I developed the worst gluten intolerance when I was at um, university. Cause it's just And scurvy, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and scurvy. It was so unhealthy and just drank like pints of beer for a pound, like go out and drink seven of them in one sitting. Like we were so, we were all so bloated, but it's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you only live once. Yeah, exactly. I think I read in your latest book, Life in Pieces, that you sort of knew age 10 that you wanted to write. How was it that you ended up going to drama school? Because I think I just got the message confused in my brain that I wanted to be, I loved performing and I was kind of good at it, but I was, something happened in the actual bit. When I was on stage, I was fine, but I just, the rehearsal bit always really threw me. I was like, I didn't really enjoy it. I wasn't like, we have, I don't know, but I still convinced myself it's what I wanted to do. So I went to drama school and really quickly when I got there, I realised that acting just wasn't what I wanted to do at all. I always thought that I wanted to do musical theatre, I always wanted to do that thing, and then I'd actually get up and just think, oh, I just don't love it like I thought I did. And so I started to kind of um, do radio stuff at college, and then instead of my last, in my third year, instead of doing a play, I asked if I could produce a TV show instead. And then I went down to London and did a work placement on Bedeal and Skinner Unplanned as a runner instead of doing a play, and just realised that I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be an actress at all, which... It's quite frustrating to learn after three years of drama school, but... It is, but then life is also about finding out what you don't want to do because that gets you closer to finding out what you do want to do, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. And then I moved down to London and I really wanted to be a TV presenter. That was all I wanted to do. So I started working in TV and then eventually kind of started to move in front of the camera. And that was all great. And I really enjoyed all the old documentaries that I did and everything. But I always, on the side, wanted to write. I always wanted to write. and knew it was there, but writing is... It's tricky. Weirdly, you need, I found you need a lot more confidence to write than to be on camera. To pass over what you've written was terrifying. I feel like um, maybe writing is a bit more exposing because if you're presenting, you can kind of be a character. Whereas with the written word, people are kind of, I don't know, it's easier for people to judge the real you maybe. Yes, but also it's um, when you're doing any sort of production, whether it's acting on stage, on TV or film or presenting something, you're part of a huge team. Like you're not out there on your own with writing. When you read one of my books until the moment it's finished, it's really just me and my editor who's had anything to do with it at all. It's the most, and sometimes she doesn't even get to see anything until I've finished because I hold it all back. (gasps) Really? Yeah, it's entirely me. And then someone comes in and makes sure that it all makes sense and corrects your spelling. And then it's turned into a book and then suddenly it's out there like that is yeah that's really scary (laughs) terrifying you can't blame anyone else but there are a few old tv shows that I made that I didn't like the edit of and I could always say I think the editor fucked that up but with my writing I could never say 
that anyone did anything. It's all me. And so that's that's a scary thing to start doing. I found that intimidating. And I think the reason why I knew I wanted to do it is because how much I cared about how good I wanted it to be. And, and I think maybe it's good to be a bit scared of something because it means it means you really care probably leads to a better result anyway, doesn't it? I think so. And also writing was just always really loyal to me. Like TV industry, I did really well. I was really successful in my 20s. And then when I turned 30, I had no work. It was all awful. I'd been totally ditched. Um, I couldn't get a TV show for love nor money. I just didn't know what to do. But I had a column and I was writing. And then suddenly a book deal came out of that column. And I kind of looked at it and I thought, oh, if I keep writing, I will always work. I'm not relying on this huge industry that sees me as disposable, which is how I see TV. And if I just keep writing, I will always have an income. And so that realization just made me completely focus in on it and just ditch all the TV stuff, which is the best thing ever. That's so interesting. Okay, I want to ask you more about that. But let's just pause and talk about the third Desert Island dish. And that is the best dish you've ever eaten. Wow. Oh gosh, so many come to mind. That's really hard. That's a really hard one. I mean, there's so many different categories of where this question could fall. The dish that I think about so often, and I've been lucky enough to go to some amazing restaurants and eat some fantastic things, but the dish that I crave, I think about all the times. Chris and I were on our honeymoon where we had some amazing, amazing food. We started off in Vegas where we had fantastic steak. Then we went to... um Florida, where we had lovely things. And then we went to St. Lucia, where it was all awesome. And then we ended up in New Orleans. And we went to the French market in New Orleans. Now, Chris doesn't eat fish. So generally, if there's a fish extravaganza happening, I'm on my own. And what it means is, even though I do eat fish, I don't. Because if the truth is, I prefer meat. So if we're sitting in a restaurant and he orders a whopping great T-bone steak and I've got a little like slither of Dover sole, I'm just so jealous and upset. So I end up eating way more meat than, than I would if I married somebody who ate fish. Anyway, we went into the French market. We had two things. First was a moufflata sandwich, which is a New Orleans sandwich. And it's the specific three types of cheese with this like olive tapenade. And it's just one of the most fantastic sandwiches. People try and copy it around the world. I've had it here in Los Angeles and it's never the same. The way they do it in New Orleans is kind of spicy and bitter, but cheesy and just fantastic. Dawn, you had me at three cheese. <laughs> that sounds incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. So if you ever get the chance to go to New Orleans, you have to have the mouvelada. And then tickle on through the French market and you come across this stall with these enormous vats of smoking crawfish in this absolutely incredible infused, like what, whatever you call it, whatever they're cooking it in, like the spices and the broth. And they just like scoop out a pint of crawfish, shove it in a bucket and give it to you. And my husband just sat and watched me eat bucket after bucket of these crawfish. And I was like, this is hands down, it's garlicky and spicy and just the most aromatic, flavoursome, fantastic. Oh my God. And I just sat and I ate them and I ate them and I ate them. And I have thought about them almost daily since I was there. And what was that? Probably eight years ago. So when you ask me that question, that's the that's the dish, that's the meal, that's the thing that I think about the most and how I can't wait to go back to New Orleans and go and get them. Oh, that sounds amazing. And also so nice that those are both from your honeymoon. I know. I know. How romantic. I also ate, what's the, what's the mock turtle or turtle soup in New Orleans, which I would not recommend. No, 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 no need. So what you said previously about your career it really made me think because from the outside, you were definitely very successful. And I wondered if having such a successful career in TV put any kind of pressure on you for, for what you would do next. And sort of when you started writing, having experienced the sort of highs and lows, did it make you nervous about doing the next thing? Weirdly, if I went back into TV again, I would never see it as my career almost. It, it, I feel like I feel like it would always feel like something I stepped in and out of. But with writing, I don't, because I don't trust it. And, you know, there's been amazing TV shows on that people have loved that just get cancelled. Like no one, you're just at the mercy of big decisions made by somebody else. So weirdly, I don't, in terms of nervousness, I have so much confidence with writing. Because like I said before, as long as I keep doing it, 
I will always work, whether it's a blog or whether it's a book or whether it's a whatever it is, as long as I keep producing. And also, I think the thing is with writing, I actually did a blog about this the other day because people ask me all the time, like, how can I become a writer? How can I become a writer? I don't know what to do. And I'm like, you, you have to you have to treat it like a skill that you need to hone. Like part of the skill of writing is actually having the motivation to sit at your computer from nine to five and write. And that's the, honestly, someone said to me years ago, this TV producer, when I said to him, I'd like to be a writer, but I don't know how. And he just said, sit at your computer and write. That's the hardest part. And I think now we've kind of nailed that. The kids have actually weirdly helped because when I have childcare or they're at school, I have to use those hours to work. When before I had kids, I would just have this expansive time, 24 seven weekends. And I did way less because I didn't have a working day. And so now, now I feel really confident about it because, you know, I'm, I'm just in a position where my work is doing well. And if I, I you know, I, I get nervous about, you know, when they say things like you're only as good as your last book or whatever it is they're referring to, you're only as good as your last meal, you're only as good as your last... Ah, so many of these sayings are so stressful. <laughs> they are stressful, but also it's important. It's my job. It's important for me to, you know... If I was going to an office every day and I had a boss, I'd need to keep my standard up and I need to keep working to, you know, keep achieving at work. And you have to have that same attitude when you're creative. You have to think, how can I make this more interesting than what I did last time? How can I, you know, keep making my work exciting for my readers who spend money on my work? How would like they're going to go out and buy my book? How can I I've got to make sure that's a good experience for them and they're not disappointed at the end of it. And that that's motivating. It's not stressful for me. It's motivating and it's how it should be, I think, especially when you're in a situation like me where you're asking people to financially support your work and pay for it yeah of course so but I like I like that exchange and I, th- I feel like it's a fair exchange you you pay for my book and I'll do my absolute best to make it brilliant for you yeah that's such a nice way of thinking about it I hadn't considered it like that before yeah and but with TV there's so many people who interfere with the job that I would do that's when I start to lose confidence like well, who's going to direct this? Who's going to edit this? Who's going to make it different from what I've done? Something else that you said was when you were younger, you craved fame, but you've come to realise that it isn't actually fame that you want. It's success. And I thought that was really interesting because so often those two things are conflated, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I mean, it's it's when you realise that they're two very different things. It's it's a real relief. And fame is quite fun. I have I have a tiny bit of it, which I really enjoy. I really enjoy when I tap into it and get response from it, like, for example, my Instagram account is, you know, me showing off entirely. I like it when, um, when I'm able to sell my work because I have a profile, that's all really wonderful. And I guess that's kind of part of fame, but I have quite a famous husband and I never thought that I would be in a position where I'm glad that that's him and not me. Oh, that's so interesting. Is that how you feel? Well, yeah, because I kind of get the benefits of it, but without having to actually be it. <laughs> Have you ever been with him sort of out and about and someone asks you to take a photo of him and them? Oh my God, that happens all the time. Oh, it does? <laughs> yes. And I, I used to get really annoyed about it. But see, when we first got together and I was very insecure about work, like I said before, when I just lost all my TV work and he would just done bridesmaids. And so I was literally failing as my husband was conquering the globe. And it was weird because we're not, there was never any, it's not a jealousy thing. So I don't want to do his job. And he doesn't want like, you know, it wasn't that. It was just a really highlighted how badly I was doing. And also I was kind of thrust into the spotlight, never been on red carpets before, never done anything like that before. And I just felt really, really unimpressive in myself. And I was suddenly surrounded by all these people who were like, I thought was so impressive. And they'd go, what do you, oh, what do you do? And I'd be like, nothing, nothing. Oh no, not. And it wasn't nothing, but that's just how you felt. Oh, God, that's just how I felt at the time. And I never had the confidence to go, oh, I used to make these amazing documentaries and I'm just going through a stage where no one's buying them. But, you know, but I have still done great things. Didn't say that. I was just like, yeah, nothing. And um, so I used to get really upset when I just was basically the camera woman for all of Chris's fans. And then I just kind of skulk <laughs> off. Hold my bag. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, literally. And now, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, now I don't care. I don't want, the funny thing is, I don't want to be in the photo. So I sometimes grab the photos so that I, they, sometimes they say, oh, you get in as well. I'm, I really don't want loads of like selfie, the pictures of me going around. So I was like, um, no, I'll take the photo, you get in. So that's generally what happens now. And I don't mind taking pictures at all. Talking about the red carpet, I mean, I, I genuinely can't imagine anything more scary than walking a red carpet. I'm so impressed that you've done that. 
On the big ones, I'm never alone. I'm always with Chris. So that's, you know, when you've got someone to hold on to, you've got something to do with your hands. So that's always, that's always helpful. If you fall over, someone's there to sort of laugh it off with. Yeah. And also I'm so bad at posing, but I don't not enjoy it because I love, I love my vintage clothes so much. Or I love, I don't have a stylist or anything like that. So when I'm on a red carpet, I'm wearing a dress that I've chosen that I'm really comfortable in, which really helps. And that I really want to show off. So that's kind of fine. And we don't go to an awful lot of things, especially this year, obviously. But generally, when we go to things, it's because Chris is nominated or in it. And it's always really fun. Yeah, I guess that makes it really exciting. But yeah, it's my husband's like night. So it's not I'm not just on on a red carpet for no reason. It's general. It's generally a reason. And so that for that reason, it's that's true. Sort of looking at it at the abstract, it sounds really scary. But as you say, it's normally for something really exciting, in which case, yeah, kind of the whole event is really fun. Exactly. Dawn O'Porter, are you ready for this one? Because this is a hard one. It's the fourth desert island dish. What is your favourite sandwich? Oh, I mean, that mufalada I said earlier, but that's not something I can make because I wouldn't even try to recreate it. So my favourite sandwich, what a fantastic question. Oh my God, what avenue do I go down? I mean, I eat sandwiches most days. I think I read that you're a fan of the Marmite and cream cheese sandwich. I do love a Marmite. I give that to my kids a lot. Marmite and cream cheese, which is really good. I don't think I've ever had that. It's a really good combo. Mind you, if I'm having a sandwich for lunch, it's never going to be that. If I'm having a sandwich for lunch, salty butter, always mayonnaise, always Dijon, rocket, onion. Raw onion. Raw onion. Salt, pepper, always um, sea salt flakes. Very specific about salt. It would be whatever uh, deli meat is in the fridge, salami, serrano ham, ham, maybe a few slices of cherry tomatoes, but I would put the cherry tomatoes into a bowl first and salt them and leave them for a minute. Oh, yes. Because I just think that does something to them. So then I'll put them on top. What else would I whack in there? Lots more salty butter. And I guess the ideal bread. I mean, nothing is better than a really soft but crunchy, um, soft in the middle, crunchy baguette. Chris likes his um, sandwiches with toasted bread. I don't like that. I like soft, squishy bread and um, but just loads of mayonnaise and that's that's like i i love mayonnaise more than i love my own children i love mayonnaise too let's start a club yeah <laughs> the ladies mayonnaise club yes <laughs> <laughs> i also i know that you enjoy crisps what are your thoughts on crisps in sandwiches oh fantastic i i honestly would take crisps anywhere and sideways to be honest okay. <laughs> i love crisps so much i have crisps every single day i don't have a sweet tooth at all i honestly couldn't care less if every grain of sugar fell off the planet i just have no interest in it occasionally i might just think oh i have some chocolate and then i'll have a bit but a bar of chocolate could last in my house for six months if it was down to me well, i feel like maybe that's a bit of a superpower dawn maybe see chris is the opposite he's got such a sweet tooth so actually it would last five minutes but if it was on the desert island on the desert island if i had a bar of chocolate i could make that last a long time but fried potato is my downfall and i love all of them I love all of them. All of them. All the crisps. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about this year, because this is the year that prompted you to write Life in Pieces, which it's a sort of memoir, even though you say that you swore you'd never write a memoir. But it's a diary documenting life this year as you navigate grief, both personal, but also collective. And you basically document the day to day reality of this year and a life that we just couldn't have predicted. Is that a good nutshell of the book? It really is. I mean, I really, really had no idea that I was going to write a book this year because I started a blog and after a few months, and the blog just ended up being when we did that first stay at home um, order in in March. For that two months, I basically just blogged every night because I was doing so much childcare, I couldn't write. So uh, getting the kids to bed, pouring wine, eating crisps and writing my blog became like this kind of therapeutic daily thing. And obviously after a few months, my publisher were like, uh, can we publish this? This is quite good. And I said no initially because I put loads of stuff about the kids. I'm actually quite private about kids. And I put written about the kids way more than I ever would have. But my uh, blog is subscription only. So people have to pay for it, which I do because that means I can be much more open because everyone wants to be there. It's not, I don't get, you know, bitchy comments. And I, so therefore I was- Yeah, that's so nice. Yeah, so therefore I was quite open about the kids. But for the book, I kind of, I, I took a lot of that stuff out because I didn't want it to go to a bigger audience. But it was very therapeutic to write about it at the time. But yeah, total, total accident. I was very, I said a lot. I really spoke. I was going through such a hard time. My friend Caroline Flacker, obviously just died and I was so I was in such a mess emotionally and then 
kind of thrust into this, you're not allowed out, you can't see your friends, you've only got to look after kids and everyone outside your front door is dying of a deadly disease. It was like, okay, I've got something to write about. Yeah, I can't even imagine. It's such a clever combination of it's very, very moving, but it's also really funny, which it's so clever to be able to balance those two things. Well, you do. I mean, even in the throes of like desperate grief in a global pandemic, like it's some days were just funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm so I'm so kind of proud of us as a family for finding joy. Because I, I mean, Chris was really sad as well, but he was obviously also in the situation that everyone was in, but also dealing with a wife who was extremely sad. Yeah. And so we, I, I don't know how we managed to find moments of joy. We had moments of total non-joy and some really like horrible days where it just all got on top of us. But I'm really glad that I captured the fun bits too. I keep just thinking what a great thing it's going to be for the boys to read when they're older because they won't really remember this year. So fun. And um, I wanted to talk about the boys because one of the things in the book you say you um, developed a sort of excellent lockdown tradition of a 4pm charcuterie board. And it did make me think, you have set the bar very high for your boys' future <laughs> wives, haven't you? <laughs> Honestly, they are. I'm so determined that my kids will be the kind of boys who go to university and cook all their friends a Sunday lunch and a really, really good one. I always got so turned on by boys who were really, really into food and not just like you know, burgers and chips, but really like into food because I was. And so I just want the boys to be adventurous. I feel like food's taken me on such an adventure around the world. Like I've filmed and worked and traveled to all sorts of places. And it's just, I'm so glad that I love food because that just extends your trip to this other level when you are willing to try things. And the idea that my kids are only three and five and art is just starting to become adventurous. Like he'll, I can go to the fishmonger now and buy a huge crab and he'll come home and smash it up with me and eat it, which is amazing. That's so exciting. I know. And I'm just, I've been so determined for them to not be kind of basic eaters. And even though Valentine is going through the stage of like not eating vegetables and being really annoying, I'm still like, I'm not going to just feed you like boring stuff. You're going to be foodies you're going to be adventurous we're going to go on holiday and you're going to try everything and we're going to do this and so they're going to have to like end up with partners who are into food otherwise they'll just be so disappointed but but, i mean they're going to be very disappointed if their wife isn't whipping up a charcuterie board at 4 (laughs) p.m i know i'm going to be that kind of mother-in-law though who like sends them a daily menu (laughs) says you have to you have to provide this for the for the boys today (laughs) and if you don't it will arrive in hamper form on your doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. It's got to be an egg on toast. I have it every morning. Oh, you do? I do. I have a fried egg on toast almost every morning. I just, and on some mornings I think I should have something different because that would be good. But I just love it. Really salty. No, if it isn't broken, don't fix it. Yeah, so I just nearly did an egg-breaking joke there that would have been absolutely terrible. We love them on Desert Island Dishes Dawn. Okay, well, the egg is broken. (laughs) So I do a fried egg on toast, on buttery wholemeal toast. And maybe every second to third morning, I will also smash an avocado onto that toast um, and put, oh my God, my big discovery in lockdown, which I which I didn't really know about before because I always thought it was fake food, but it isn't. It's what? Garlic powder. Oh, yes. Garlic powder is an absolute revelation. It's not minced garlic, like fake lazy garlic, which is what I always thought it was. It's it's so delicious. So buttery toast with smash the avocado and put loads of garlic powder in it, a few chilli flakes and a little bit of cumin and a squeeze of lemon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, that's smashed up under a fried egg. Oh, God. I think you're right about garlic powder. I think it's particularly big in America, but it's definitely really underrated, isn't it? Yeah, it's really good. I've now, I get through it, loads of it. I mean, it's what, what it's really good for is if I make the boys a pizza, I use that tomato sauce, the passada that we were talking about before, and just put um, garlic powder and a little bit of oregano. It's just the most perfect, easy pizza tomato base. That's a good tip. Yeah, it's really good for the kids because... It makes sure, say if you do them lamb chops or something like that, and you don't want to overwhelm them with herbs, kids kids can be a bit weird about herbs. But if you just sprinkle the garlic powder on the lamb chops or onto steak or whatever it is, or chicken, then they're getting quite a strong flavour. So it's, 
they're not getting bland food, which is my fear with kids is that they get used to bland food. So they don't ever want to try anything else. But it's really it's really useful. I love it. So, yeah, um, fried egg on toast, possibly with avocado is my most munched meal. (laughs) That should have been the question, shouldn't it? What is your most munched meal? (laughs) You talk about corned beef and cabbage quite a lot in the book, and I don't think I've ever had it. So obviously it's very Irish. They sell it out here around St. Patrick's Day in packets. It's like, uh, you know, in a vacuumed plastic pack, a huge... So it's beef brisket, isn't it? Yes, but it's. I don't know what the process of corning beef is. I, I should look into it, but... I think it's pickled. Yeah, it's absolutely delicious. So you buy it in the packet and it's got all the pickling spices in with it. And then you literally just boil it for three hours. And it's tender and absolutely delicious. And then for the last, say, 45 minutes of boiling it, you just quarter a cabbage and chuck that in the water. And so when, when it's done... If you take out the beef and just slice it like a normal beef joint and then stick a big kind of sloppy quarter of cabbage on the side and serve that with mashed potato and you've just got this kind of really easy, salty, gorgeous. And whenever I cook it for people, they're so impressed, but it's honestly the easiest thing that I cook. It's all just boiled. Mm, that does sound really good. I was doing some reading because I'm a nerd and it's it's actually not a national dish of Ireland, but it's a national dish of the Irish in America. Did you know that? I think that's because I think it's got something to do with the large Jewish community here anyway, because I knew the answer to this. There's something where the, uh, yes, so boiled bacon and cabbage is the traditional Irish dish, but Jewish people don't eat bacon. So they do corned beef here instead. That's, I think that's, I think that's something that I, that I heard or read as to why corned beef was so um, popular here as opposed to, yes, but in Ireland it would be bacon and cabbage. Ah, okay. That's interesting. Did this year make you think about food differently? Because there were obviously times when it was hard to know if you were going to be able to buy food and the supermarkets were empty and there was sort of rationing going on. I know that you compiled a list of essentials to sort of keep in your basement, but did this year change the way that you cook or think about food? Well, it did in, I well, first year, I mean, it was my, it was my therapy. It was my I love my kids. I wouldn't say I'm one of those mums who wants to be with them this much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I found my, um, I found cooking was like my real grown up activity. We decided right at the start that I was going to do all the food. It was just easier. I would do all the food orders. I would do all the cooking. I know it was in the fridge. I'd plan the meals and that was it. So I'm really glad we did that because it's my hobby and I love it. And it was, and what lockdown did is it made me realize well, so I know we're going to talk about cookery books later, but I had Jamie Oliver's Five Ingredients book and books like that made me, um, and what lockdown made me very good at making meals out of fewer in- ingredients because you couldn't rely on the fact that you were going to get them. So, you know, for me, it was a case of good quality, if I could get it, meat and doing very little with it. And I don't know, I mean, I'm going to, re- you know, here's the thing about this year. I'm in a really fortunate position where I was able to go to the supermarket and buy food you know I feel like for me food was a real indulgence this year it was a real pleasure that makes me very 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 lucky that I was able to do that that not only were we in a position to get the food we weren't queuing up in car parks waiting for you know food packages to feed our families which a lot of people were but I was in a position where I was cooking for a family of four and enjoyed it that wasn't awful to me I've got some friend some friends who were just found that whose husband's don't like either and so it just fell on my girlfriends to do breakfast lunch and dinner feed everybody for all that time they hate cooking they found it really really hard and it was the worst thing about lockdown for them so I feel very lucky yeah I think it was the sort of the relentlessness of cooking three meals a day was what really ground quite a lot of people down wasn't it yes but for me see that was like heaven heaven (laughs) and then once a week so we'd get a takeout once a week on um on like Thursday nights, we were ordering and that was really nice to get a night off. And if I ever wanted to and say to Chris, will you cook? He would. But I generally find myself around five o'clock kind of, hmm, what should I do tonight? And being quite excited at the prospect of doing it. What's your go-to takeaway? Oh, I mean, there's lots of tacos here because of the Mexican influence. We've got a really good taco place around the corner. So fish tacos. But my favourite takeaway would definitely be a Thai green curry. Ooh, yes. Because I don't make it. I tried to cook it once. It was a disaster. So I'm not even going to try and perfect that. I'm just, that's just going to be my takeout dish. 
there's no point ordering something that you can easily make yourself. No, exactly. Okay, let's move on to the sixth desert island dish. And it's what is your go-to dinner party dish? And obviously no one's having dinner parties at the moment, but sort of in the future when happier times are around the corner and you have your friends around, what is it that you're going to be cooking? Well, one thing that I cooked a few months ago that I was really impressed with and I wanted to do it for ages was beef wellington. Mm. And I have been really intimidated by the idea of doing a beef wellington for so long. And actually, if you watch Gordon Ramsay's video on him doing his Christmas one, it's not, it's a bit time consuming, a bit fiddly, but it's not hard at all. It's actually very simple, very few ingredients. And um, it looked absolutely beautiful. And it tasted absolutely beautiful. The only challenge I've got is Chris doesn't really like rare meat. Oh, no. So I've got, yeah, so I want to make it again, but work out how to kind of cook the beef a little longer without burning the pastries. So this, these these are my challenges in life right now. Um, <laughs> That's the only hard thing about a Wellington is it's easy to put together, but it's just the cooking because you can't see what's happening to the beef inside. Exactly. But generally, if people don't mind rare meat, because it's a really nice cut of meat in there because it's the fillet. So if people don't mind rare meat, then it doesn't matter really what's going on inside. But if you've got someone who doesn't really want it like really really pink but the other really really easy dinner party dish that I do often when I've just got people coming over is Jamie Oliver's um sausage and cherry tomato bake that is just a one a one tray bake with like um sausages and cherry tomatoes and vinegar and and it's so easy and so delicious that with mashed potato and salad and people would just be jizzing all over the place (laughs) (laughs) sorry Dawn there's a brilliant podcast out there I don't know if you've ever heard it but it's called How I Built This And the host asks every single guest the same question. And I wanted to pose it to you because of something that I read. So the question is, how much of your success is down to luck and timing? And how much is down to you and your hard work? Wow. Then you may have read that I slightly resent the concept of luck when it comes to my work. Yes. (laughs) Because I, when people say, oh, you're so lucky to have written seven books. I'm like, what? (laughs) I don't feel lucky. I like... Like that's a lot of hard work. That is putting yourself out there. That is locking yourself away. That is, I don't feel lucky when it comes to my career necessarily. I feel, I mean, look, I lucked out when I married Chris, who was really well known and probably elevated my position a lot more. So a lot more people hear about my books. That's very lucky. But then also, are you lucky for your choice of husband? Like this is my husband. I'm not lucky. I met him. I fell in love with him. I work at my marriage. So the idea of luck is just very... It's very difficult. The only thing I really feel lucky for right now is that I'm healthy and I have two healthy children. Everything else, all my relationships, all of my success, all of that is down to good choices and working hard and coping with failure and yeah, that. But I see luck as the one thing we can't really do anything about is the deal we get, you know, in terms of our health. And so yeah, I feel lucky to be healthy. No, I think that's a good answer is sort of, the idea of introducing luck is sort of belittling the hard work that you've put in. And I think with your particular career, that kind of applies more. I think other, when this host asks this question on the podcast, there's sort of big moments in people's lives where they could have got a no to this, you know, business idea and everything would have been different, but instead doors opened and, you know, the rest is history. But I I completely understand what you're saying. Well, I say, for example, you wouldn't look at someone like, Oprah, I I don't look at Oprah and say she's lucky. I say that woman has grafted and lived through the ups and downs. And that's, that's not luck. That's, that's hard work. Yeah. And also, I don't know, not to sort of, you know, bang this drum all the time, but maybe it's something we say more about women. I'm not sure we often say a, a really successful man. We don't really look at him and say, oh, he's so lucky that he got there. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's very true. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So what is your most treasured cookbook? Quick answer is anything Jamie Oliver ever writes, I am here for. I think he's absolutely unbelievable. But the the book that I chose for this, some of the best cookbooks around are not by well-known successful chefs. They are people who managed to get a book deal for some reason and just have put down all their family recipes. And sometimes you just, you can discover absolute belters of cookbooks that way. And this one is called The Social Kitchen and it's by a lady called Shally Tucker. I went to uh, an event and it was quite a small catered event and she had done all of the food and the food was absolutely delicious and it felt really like proper home cooking. So I got talking to her, went to see her in the kitchen 
And um, she told me all about herself and how her mum, she'd lost her mum, but she had um, created a cookbook of all her mum's old fantastic recipes. Wow. And I love, love, love this cookbook. There's kind of a Jewish influence in it. And she's just, but there's proper, proper, proper food. There's one in it called a pot roast chicken, which is essentially, um, she does it in the oven, but you can, I boil the chicken on the hob and it's, it's one of my favourite dishes that I do. And I would never have thought to boil a chicken on the hob unless it was from this book. And she's also just got really good, like, she's got a dish which is just jarred peppers that she boils in um, vinegar and sugar for about three hours and then just spreads over whipped cream cheese. It's the most amazing dip, but really easy and really family-friendly, dinner party-friendly and really, like onion rings and stuff like that. I absolutely love it. Social Kitchen by Shelley Tucker. It's one of those books where... I mean, I, I, I've got no idea how successful this book is, but um, she's not well known. So I've got I've got no idea. You never hear anyone talking about it, but it's an absolute gem. And you're so right. That's such a nice premise for a book. I feel like we're in a world that's kind of obsessed by celebrity, but actually everyone's family has delicious recipes that sort of deserve to be written down and remembered, don't they? Yes. Oh my God, so much. I mean, I, I honestly, I love, I love, like I, like I said, I, I just think Jamie Oliver's a genius and um, he's taught me how to cook. His books have really taught me how to cook. But I just, I just love it when people take the time to write down like, you know, mum and granny's old recipes because they're always, the reason they become family favourites is because everyone loves them. Yeah, that's such a nice choice. Thank you, Dawn. Right, we're on to the seventh and final desert island dish, and that is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. You're allowed several courses. I don't know if I said that. Okay, so I mean, to start, I'd probably go for something like shell-on jumbo prawns in garlic butter with white, crusty, buttery bread. For my main course, oh God, I mean... I, oh, I mean, a dish that I cook all the time that I just absolutely love, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's lamb chops in capers and thyme. Ooh. It's greasy and the lamb is tender and it's capers, which I love. I'd have that with buttery mashed potato and maybe some arugula salad. And that's rocket for those who don't know what I'm talking about. And then I'd skip puddings, don't care, and then just have like a massive cheese plate. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. Dawn, thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes. I mean, honestly, just talking about food is such a joy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a lovely hour. Thank you so much. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And it really does make a difference. I know it's a cliche, but it boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and also means I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. It's changed from Margie Namora. <laughs> and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our sponsor, Kalinko.